The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. First week, we just went uh, back to what is the gospel, gospel 101. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in contrast to other world religions, is not about the good that we do. It is about the good that has been done for us by God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when you believe that, the Holy Spirit then enters into, into you, and then he shows God's grace through you. Okay, so the gospel is God for us, the Holy Spirit then lives in us, and then God's grace, as, as evidence that he lives in us, God's grace then shows through us. This changes your whole approach to life. This changes the way you interact with humanity. And there's no better place to interact with humanity than where there is the most, most humanity, more humanity than anywhere else, which is, by definition, in cities. So your Christian faith has opportunity to show more brightly in cities than any other place on earth. Light shows more brightly in darkness than it does anywhere else. And where there's more humans, there's more potential sin and more lost souls. Therefore, light shines that much more brightly. Now, if we are working as God's people in the city, we are designed to be an alternate community, an other-focused community, what St. Augustine called the city of God. When we live out as the city of God, it leads to things like transformed lives. It leads to uh, the healing of social brokenness. It leads to things like culture creation and renewal. And it leads to a bunch of people doing this, uh, willing to do anything except one thing, which is change the gospel. In other words, they're willing to sacrifice their whole lives in order to not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, ironically, the other end of it is they're willing to compromise absolutely everything else, their own man-made culture, their own personal convenience for the sake of getting the gospel into just one more life itself. Okay, that brings us to uh, the last week. And again, I don't want this to be merely a summary. I want it to be kind of a crystallization of these truths in your mind. And in order to do that, we're going to look at the wisdom literature of Scripture from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Wisdom regarding being believers in the city. Here we read, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. This is God's word. Now, a proverb, if you're not familiar with the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, uh, they don't have nice, neat chapters. They're little kind of couplets and sayings that provide aphorisms, universal truths, uh, which mean that they apply to everyone in every era in history. And this particular proverb gives us insight in what it means to look like Christians in the city. Um, specifically, what it does is it contrasts the righteous with the wicked. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do tonight. I'm going to ask you, when you see righteous and wicked or righteous and unrighteous, I'm asking you not to look at that and understand that as good people and bad people. Okay. It's not good people and bad people. The world likes to categorize people as good people and bad people. Interestingly enough, the, the bad people are always over there, and then there's a line, and I'm always on the side of the good people, no matter who you ask. 
But the world does that, and I think it's, number one, socially unproductive, and number two, biblically inaccurate. It's socially unproductive because, I mean, it depends on which newspaper you read or uh, which you know, news program you listen to. It's always those people over there, them and us. Okay? And we cannot find any common ground publicly. So I think it's unproductive. More importantly, I think it's biblically inaccurate. The Bible does not suggest that there are good people and bad people in the world as much as there are one group of people. We were created all descended from Adam and Eve who fell and therefore passed on that fallen nature in a fallen world to everybody else and therefore we are fundamentally more alike than we are different because we are all sinners that can only be saved by the grace of God. Therefore, when you see righteous and unrighteous or righteous and wicked, please do not just simplistically look at that as, well, there's good people and bad people in the world. Um, Rather, the word for righteous here, in Hebrew, it's the word tzaddik. Um, And even that translation, righteous, I don't know that I have a better word here for it, but I do think that it's crazy. The word righteous today almost has a pejorative negative connotation. When you say righteous today, somebody almost cannot help but think about somebody who is self-righteous. Self-righteous is kind of condescending and arrogant and controlling and holier than thou and um, almost, you know, kind of oppressively dogmatic. That's not what the Bible means when it says, talks about the righteous. It can't mean that because look at what it says. It says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. If Milwaukee was filled with more controlling, uh, holier-than-thou, oppressively dogmatic people, do you think the whole city would rejoice by getting more and more of those people into the city? No, of course not. Therefore, righteous must mean something else. And in fact, in the Bible, righteous is the idea of those who are, are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to benefit the community. The wicked, the unrighteous, is the exact opposite. It's those who are living for the sake of their their selves at the expense of the community. They're working only towards their own personal financial goals, economic goals, uh, social goals, relational goals. Okay? That's the biblical, in other words, biblical righteousness is way more than just a little more morality or anything like that. I can prove this to you. Sometimes I want you, I don't want you to think I'll just take Pastor Hines' word for it. I want you to see it. Like, I'm just making up definitions of what righteous means. Uh, this is from the theological word book of the Old Testament, which is one of the three Hebrew to, uh, to English lexicons that I use when doing translation from the Old Testament. And here it says, the righteous person, by the way, righteousness is such an enormous concept in the Bible that there's, there's several pages, three or four pages, just on what it is, righteous or righteousness is. But under the category of ethical righteousness, what it says here is the highlighted portion. The man who is righteous tries to preserve the peace and prosperity of the community by fulfilling the commands of God in regard to others. In the supreme sense, the righteous man, the tzaddik, is what it's called, is the one who serves God. Specifically, he, like Job, which if you recall in the Old Testament, he's called more righteous than anybody else. He, like Job, delivers the poor and the orphan, helps the blind along the way, supports the weak, and is a father, a provider to the poor. This was the righteous clothing of Job's life. Here's where it gets convicting, at least, at least for me. Because I think the average, the average Christian today can read through Proverbs 11 and you look at it and it says, you know what, 
the righteous, uh, the, the city is happy to have the righteous and the city hates having the wicked there. And you think, well, yeah, I'm a believer. I'm the righteous. The wicked, those are the non-believers. Um, and I'm morally, uh, comparatively better than a lot of people out, out there. And so for this, the city is lucky to have me. I think a lot of Christians can very easily read it like that. That's not what it's saying. What this, what this text is really pushing us to ask is, is your community objectively blessed by your presence? Are you the type of person that other people, if you asked them about it, would say, you know what, I don't uh, necessarily agree with everything he or she believes. I'm not even sure I know all of what he or she believes, but this, my community would be a much, worth, a much worse place if they were not here. Is that you? Would people in your office say that about you? Or in your neighborhood? Or in the city? Um, This isn't the only time in the Bible that this comes up, by the way. Um, We already looked at Jeremiah 29 where God tells the Israelites in exile to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter in his first epistle echoes the exact same kind of sentiment when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though some of them may accuse you of wrongdoing, they very clearly may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Very clearly, there's this thread throughout the Bible that is saying There should be something noticeable and measurable about your life by which those who don't even theologically agree with you look at what you do and look at who you are and say, we are blessed by their presence. I don't know how we'd get by without them. So again, I want to ask you, is that you? Would people in my neighborhood, if you ask the people in my neighborhood, if James Hine was just sucked out of here and he moved away, would they shed a single tear that I was no longer present? Uh, What about us as a church? Uh, If you went around our community and asked people, if St. Marcus all of a sudden just disappeared tomorrow, would they shed any tears over that? I think there's probably a lot of people in our community that um, would at some point say something uh, regarding the positive impact of our school. I think there's a lot of people who maybe uh, way beyond the walls of St. Marcus maybe have uh, been blessed by like Pastor Jeske's time of grace ministry and and if that was all of a sudden gone, they would be hurt by that. Um, I also understand that I don't expect somebody who doesn't have the spirit of God inside of them, an unbeliever, to to recognize the blessing and the benefits of biblical teaching within within a church. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the person without the Spirit does not um, re- understand the things that come from the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. That being said, what I think our proverb here is telling us tonight is simply this. The world around you should recognize some kind of tangible, measurable, noticeable blessing by your presence there. To such an extent that when those who are the righteous come into power, the whole city rejoices. The whole city is happy about it. Um, Which is kind of odd. You might think that the righteous want the righteous in power, but the wicked, they would want the wicked in power, right? Nope, that's not what the proverb says. Both the righteous and the wicked want the righteous in power. Here's why. Because for the righteous to come into power, that means they didn't trample over people in order to get so high. They didn't hurt anybody along the way. And furthermore, when they arrived in power... They're going to use their power. Remember what we said righteous meant. 
seeking the benefit of others ahead of self, as opposed to wickedness is seeking the benefit of self ahead of others. So if the righteous go into power, both the righteous and the wicked recognize that those righteous people in power are going to use that power to bless others. See, it's kind of like if you're playing a game, like a, like a board game, like Monopoly, and you're somebody who plays very honestly, you hope that the other people you're playing with don't cheat. But if you're a cheater who's playing Monopoly with a bunch of other people, you're also hoping that everybody else there plays honestly and isn't a cheater. Nobody wants other people taking advantage of them. Everybody's happy when everybody else is playing righteously. So the whole community rejoices when the righteous, when, when righteous people rise to the top of their fields and the top of their professions and enter into political office or whatever else. When they rise to power, the whole community rejoices because they know they're going to use that power to bless others ahead of self. Now, what does that look like? Somebody coming into power and giving, getting the opportunity to bless others with it. Political power, economic power. Uh, let me give you one example. I know somebody that recently came into a whole lot of power, financial power. Her name is Mavis Wanzik from Chicopee, Massachusetts. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't know if Wanzik, I don't know how you say that last name, but it's Mavis. Mavis just won the largest lottery in U.S. history, uh, $758 million. Okay? And... Um, you know what the media does after something like this. I'm always fascinated to hear how somebody's going to react to that, how that kind of good fortune, how grace impacts your life. And so the media interviews Mavis, and they, they do all the standard questions. Okay, what are you going to do next? Well, she says, I'm going to, I quote, sit back and relax and go and hide in my bed. That's what I'm going to do. They asked her, is this going to affect your work life at all? She said, oh, yeah, I've already quit my job. They said, well, are you going to treat yourself to anything nice and new and whatever? She said, I just, I just bought a car recently, so I'm going to pay off the loans. This is how it's changed her life. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to be hard on, I want to be unfair to Mavis. Because that's, I mean, the first instinct, my first instinct whenever anybody asks anything is, yeah, I'd rather be hiding in my bed right now than anything else. There's nothing in life that I'd rather be doing than hiding in my bed from a scary world. That's a natural instinct. But it's not a good instinct. Um, I mean, it's just so cliche. What are you going to do with that $758 million you did? Well, I'm going to make some decisions that are going to make my life a little easier and a little bit more comfortable. That's what I'm going to do. Let me give you a different option. What if Mavis, if she takes the lump sum up front, which is what I think she said she's going to do, if you, you know how you can take it in installments or take the lump sum up front, if she takes it up front, it's $480 million. What if Mavis were to do something like just take $5 million and say, you know what, I'm going to keep $5 million for myself. She worked, I think she was in, uh, in healthcare in administration or something like that. $5 million is more than she would have ever seen working at her job. She can still retire right now if she wants and, and live off the interest and all that stuff. She's just going to keep $5 million for herself and then I'm going to take the other $475 million and I'm going to just bless other people who are in need with that. The American public would think she was absolutely insane. Why? Because nobody does that. You don't give away more than you take. But isn't that kind of the problem? 
Aren't the ugliest things that you see in society when the result of people who are willing to take more than they're willing to give? And aren't the most beautiful demonstrations that you see in society the occasions when people are willing to give more of themselves than what they're looking to take? What do you think it would take for Mavis to say, yeah, I'm just going to take $5 million and give away $475 million? What would it take for you to only take $5 million and give away $475 million? Um, I think you'd have to look at it like my, my money stopped being my money. What if it was just, just imagine with me here for a second, what if it was just God's money and I was like a drone that God was flying around to dispense blessings to meet the needs of others around me? And how many of us living like that collectively, now you don't need $480 million to live that way, how many of us living like that collectively would it take before the surrounding community looked at us and said, you know what, I'm not sure I believe everything that they believe. In fact, I'm not even sure I know everything that they believe, but I wish more people believed it because our world would be a remarkably better world to live in if they did. Um, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like a desirable outcome, but a kind of scary journey. I think the things in life uh, that threaten my comfort, my, my uh, time, and my energy, and my money, those are the things that seem like the scariest enemies to me. But the gospel render, renders them powerless. You know how? Because the gospel says, I have a victorious Savior who has defeated my worst enemies, and he's resurrected from the grave. And if I have a Savior who's resurrected from the, from the grave, who has gifted to me eternal life, I have all eternity, which means I can give away a little bit of my time here on earth. And if I have a resurrected Savior who invites for me to come and reign with him over a new heavens and a new earth, I'm never going to lack any resources. So I can give away some of my resources right now. And if I have a resurrected Savior who is going to give me a new body, this body back, but better than it, than it ever was, uh, the way that it was actually supposed to be so that it will never hurt and it will never tire, I can give away some of my energy right now too. In other words, my ability to impact the city around me right now is directly proportional to me having my eyes on the new Jerusalem and the holy city. You follow? If you lose sight of the holy city in your life, you become completely incapable. You lose the capacity to bless the city in your presence. And on the other hand, if we collectively walk by faith, this, is, this sounds crazy, if we collectively walk by faith, we can actually cause Christ to walk right on our streets. Uh, I've touched on this before, but I'm going to say it again. I think that the uh, conservative Christian church in the past 100, 150 years has gotten to the point where we've shied away from doing any humanitarian efforts. And I know the reason why it happened, because in the early 20th and mid-20th century, there was something called a social gospel. The social gospel was a false gospel. It was a gospel, it was a redefining of the gospel to mean just humanitarian efforts and say uh, it got rid of repentance, it got rid of sin, it got rid of grace, it got rid of eternal life and all that stuff and said what what the whole mission of the gospel is, is to just heal people's earthly needs right now. And conservative Christians backed away from that. However, in the process, they didn't want to be associated, so what they did is they eviscerated the conservative church of any humanitarian efforts. And that was a wrong response to an admittedly wrong gospel. 
And so what conservative theological churches are having to do is right now we are having to relearn how to show love and compassion, how to show other-focused living. But where I direct those conservative Christians who think, you know, I don't know if, if that's really our mission is to heal any of society's woes, what I'd say is just do me one favor, just read through Matthew 25. When Jesus' disciples ask him about the end of the ages and he says, I'm going to come back and judge the world, do you know what he says? In Matthew 25, on the day of judgment, Jesus says that the litmus test for orthodoxy on the last day will not merely be accurate doctrinal confession, but it will be active social compassion as well. What did you do for the least of my brothers? Where, Lord, where were you when... Uh, where were you thirsty? Where did we see you hungry? Whatever you didn't do for the least of my brothers, you didn't do for me. I did not know you. Conservative churches are trying to relearn that right now. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a secular world that really struggles when they see humanitarian needs and they look at it and they say, well, how could a loving God possibly allow there to be such great need in the world? And you know what the simple response to that is? There's an easy explanation. Uh, look at it like this. Some of you have heard me use this example before too. Look at it like every human being has a basket into which all of the needs that they have for life goes. All the things that provide for those needs. We all have this basket. The interesting thing is in some of our baskets, some of us have almost nothing. And in others of us, we have baskets that are full with way more than we could ever possibly use, way more than we need. Why does God do that? If you have one person with zero in his basket and one person with two in his basket, what is God doing? It's because God designed for us not merely to be dependent on him, but to be interdependent on one another. And therefore, he provides enough for the both of them, but he puts it all in one basket so that when the person with two shares with the one who has not, not only have they both been provided for by God, but they've actually built a relationship together in the process. And it's a brilliant design. We're just sometimes flawed in carrying it out. What happens in the process is that it's a test of faith for both of us. The person who has no, nothing in their basket, it's a test of their faith. Is the Lord really going to provide through his body to meet their needs? And for the person who has many things in their basket, it's a test of their faith. Have you, have you been so moved by the overwhelming grace of God in providing not just for your daily needs, but also for your greatest need, a savior from sins? Has that moved you to an overwhelming gratitude that you yourself are now overflowing with grace and you're going to share not only your salvation, but also all your worldly stuff with others who have needs as well? Look at it like this. I'm going to push this basket analogy one, for, one farther. What did it take for Jesus to come and put salvation in your basket? It, t- it took him, it cost him everything he had and everything he was. Look at, look at how Jesus does human compassion. Jesus doesn't just come to help out the poor. You notice he became poor. He doesn't just help the poor. He became poor, born lowly and in a manger. Jesus doesn't just come and give somebody something to drink who is thirsty, but at the cross, cosmically and incomprehensibly, he says, I thirst. Jesus doesn't just donate his gently used clothing to a local Salvation Army or Goodwill. On the cross, Jesus gets stripped naked. 
Jesus doesn't just donate a couple of hours on a Saturday morning to help out with a, a Habitat or Thrivent build or something like that. And those are great to do. We should be doing them. But you notice the Son of Man actually has no place of his own to rest his head. Um, and what about forgiving our sins? Jesus doesn't just say, I forgive you, because he can't just say, I forgive you. That wouldn't have paid the price. But on the cross, Jesus gets crushed under the hell of 10 billion selfish souls. Why? compassion because he loves you and me that much and he can't stand the thought of us crying one more tear in such a fallen world so he comes and asks us to go and live with him and his father in the eternal blessing of their mansions in heaven he wants you and me that badly and the moment you and i start to to catch a glimpse of the beauty and how crazy that love for us is that's the moment when we start being a blessing and living as a blessing to our surrounding community in our city Give me, give me one more minute, uh, two more minutes, two minutes to show you because I don't think, I honestly don't think you see a whole lot of Christians who are doing this together. I think I see a lot of Christians who independently do this at times, but a lot of Christians doing this together in such a way that the rest of the community is saying, man, they are really a blessing to us. But there have been historical examples of this that I think are com- incredibly compelling If you go back to the early Christian church, there were two major plagues in the Roman Empire in the first several hundred years. And in 260 AD, we have a guy by the name of Dionysius of Alexandria who's describing how the Christians reacted to that in contrast to the way the non-believing world did. When the plague hit the cities, what everybody did is the natural instinct, the natural reaction was everybody just left everyone else for dead and ran up to the hills, except the Christians. Here's what Dionysius wrote. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead, died in their place. Where would you get such a crazy idea like that unless somebody had already done it for you? The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. In every way, it is the equal of martyrdom. Now here's the contrast. Dionysius goes on to say, The heathen behaved the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. The unbelievers thought nothing of, uh, not thought of nothing except themselves and their survival and their comfort. The believers who knew Christ was already victorious for them and had opened up the gates of heaven to them now had Christ living in them by his spirit and his grace started to show through them. And what did they do? They laid down their lives cheerfully, not only for their friends and family, but even for strangers. Can we be that too? As a Christian church, In the Western world, every metric is saying it's starting to wane in the West. I'm 
led to believe that the churches will act, that will actually exist 25, 50 years from now are those that are actually carrying out what Jesus designed his church to be, which is his voice of truth, absolutely, and no less his hands and feet of love and compassion. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, if we're confessing tonight, I think a lot of us, I know myself, would have to confess that I have not been the objective blessing to my surroundings uh, that I should have been. I should be so other-focused that other people would say, man, this place would be much worse without him, but it, it, I haven't carried that out, and I'm sorry, and we're sorry. We thank you, Jesus, for being an objective blessing in our life. Thank you for coming and being present with us, living for us, dying in our place so that we can now also do likewise. With you in us, your grace can show through us. And so we're asking you to help us, not just as individuals, but collectively as a community of believers, that we would be an objective blessing to our city. We trust that you will bless that. Jesus, in your holy name we pray. Amen.